I want to focus this week on the excerpt from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the first reading that Patricia read for us this morning. Paul's letter allows us to continue on this theme we've been exploring over the past few weeks, what it means to be the church, this alternative community, this alternative reality that I have been talking about with you. To start with, what we know about this letter is that it was written sometime between the year 50 and the year 60. It was written while Paul, Paul is in prison. We don't know where. Paul was often in prison throughout uh, the Mediterranean world for his work spreading the gospel. Now, the church at Philippi was special to Paul. It was founded by Paul, his first church on European soil. It was a church that was mostly made up of Gentiles. Philippi was at that time a Roman colony. It's a, it was populated by retired soldiers. They were pensioned off, given land and a place in Philippi. And as always in Paul's letters then, we're dealing with the first generation of Christians. The first generation of people trying to work out what it is to be the church. Now, not surprisingly for those of us who have any experience whatsoever of church, the early church had its problems and challenges. We don't learn from this letter what specific problems or challenges Paul is responding to, but we do get the sense that it has something to do with unity, with unity. So there, right there in the first generation of Christians, in the first generation of church, they found something to fight about. They found something to fight about. I think this perhaps should be a comfort to us. It's always been this way in the church. Unity for the church is always a work in progress. Now, today when conflict arises in the church, we often turn to the methods of conflict resolution or mediation. We often bring in a third-party consultant uh, who can help us navigate our way through our differences. That's a little bit like what you're hearing, overhearing in this letter. Paul is the outside consultant um, giving advice. So let's see what we can learn from Paul's response to this early church dispute. Now, the first thing to notice is that Paul does not here describe the opposing positions and what they're doing. He doesn't urge them to find some kind of compromise or middle ground. None of that is present in this letter. Instead of focusing on their differences and what it would take to bridge them, Paul focuses on what they all have in common, their faith their faith in Jesus Christ. He reminds them of the song that they would have known by heart, the song that's right in the middle of the reading that Patricia read for us. Verses 6 to 11. It's a very ancient hymn about Jesus, perhaps the very first Christian hymn. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And here's where the hymn starts. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is here drawing the attention of the Philippians, perhaps especially to the, the choir amongst the Philippians, uh, to the source of their unity, to the source of their unity, and away from the things that divide them. He's helping them to make a distinction between the things that are central, the things that are core to being Christian community, and those things that are more a matter of taste or preference, but not core to our identity as Christians. This, you will find, is a recurring theme in the letters of Paul as he spreads the gospel across the vast, multicultural, multi-ethnic Mediterranean world. This interplay between our God-given diversity of languages, cultures, identities, personalities, tastes, preferences, and needs, all of that diversity and then the, the thing, the one thing that draws us together into this particular kind of community, the church. Paul, it seems to me, is always concerned with this question of how much of our other identities, our gender, our occupation, how wealthy or poor we are, our political leanings, how much these impact our Christian identity and our life in the church. For Paul, the answer is simple. Our Christian identity trumps all of our other identities. It's not that it erases them. It's not that it negates them or denigrates them. It's just that it puts them in perspective. It relativizes them. So in other letters, you find Paul writing to wives and husbands about how they should conduct themselves in their marriages. He says, you know, you need to figure out how to be Christian wives and Christian husbands. He writes to masters, slaveholders, and says to them, hmm, what does it mean to be a Christian slaveholder? How does that affect your relationship with those who, who are slaves to you? How does that affect your interaction with those who are different in status but your equals in Christ. The same goes for all of our other identities and affiliations. Political leanings, generational cohort, ethnic background, right down to our tastes and preferences in worship and music. All of our various identities are shaped, reformed by our Christian identity coming from all these diverse places, Paul wants us to adopt a common mindset, the mind of Christ, and for that to guide all our interactions in the church. For Paul, the key aspect of the mind of Christ is the, is the notion of humility, the kind of humility that we see in this story, this Christ hymn. Though he was God, he became a slave, descended to the bottom of the heap to raise us all up to reconcile us to God. 
We are to be like Jesus, Paul says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. See, this is that countercultural alternative reality uh, that I keep talking about, how the church is meant to be unlike the world. What makes us in the church unique and distinct from the world is that we gather around this story that makes no sense in the eyes of the world. A story of how God, the power of the universe, willingly became a slave submitted himself to humiliation and indignity and the the gross humiliation of the most uh, 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 tortured uh, kind of death you could imagine in the ancient world, death on a cross. All of this for the purpose of rescuing us, somehow saving us from the consequences of our foolishness and our selfishness all of the array of things that we might file under the category of sin with a capital S. For Paul, then, this story of Jesus is not only the the one thing we have in common in the church, it's also the one thing that makes us different from the world. We gather around this story. We take this story to be the truth in the midst of a world that so desperately wants to believe that other stories are true. We live in a world that is disconcertingly divided, seemingly more so every week. Divisions over race, between the political left and right, between competing identity groups. Politicians offer slogans about how to make their societies or nations great but the proposals they offer appeal to fear, self-interest, greed. And the implementation of those proposals would do great harm to the most vulnerable in our societies and in our world. The poor, refugees, the sick, people of color. The very people that God in Jesus came down and pitched his tent with. See, in the church, we have a better story. We have a story that draws us together across our differences and a story that offers the world a better way. While I was studying at Duke, I read a book that uh, comes from the business world. It's called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And at the heart of this book is what Collins calls the hedgehog concept. The hedgehog concept. He says every organization to be successful needs to have a hedgehog concept, something that it can offer that no one else is offering, something it can offer that's not available elsewhere. For the church, the story of Jesus, this incredible story, is our hedgehog concept. The story of Jesus is this one thing that we all have in common And it's the one thing we have to offer the world that's not available anywhere else. It's true we may not agree on every aspect, every detail of the story and what it means. But we're all in some way wrestling with this story, with this particular account of reality. While I was at Duke, I was the only student from a Christian denomination uh, in which the... the, uh, 
sexual orientation or gender identity was not a barrier to ordination. That might have been a source of division between us as a cohort of students, but it wasn't. The reason it wasn't was because of Jesus. Because we were able to see that we had a common commitment to the way of Jesus. One of my teachers said at the time, I've usually found that those who love God and have a heart for the gospel are able to recognize those same qualities in others given the chance. See, the world offers a whole variety of stories as to what makes a nation great or an organization great or even what makes a church great. As people who live in that world, we're naturally influenced by those messages. We're naturally influenced by the ways they form our identities and the ways we approach life. We're shaped by our gender. We're shaped by our political ideology. We're shaped by wealth or poverty, by our race. And naturally, we bring all of that in when we come into the church. But the gift of the church, our precious hedgehog, is a story that's more powerful than all of those other stories. An identity that is deeper, truer, stronger than any other identity you walk through those doors with this morning. Here we belong to Christ. Here we have the opportunity to loosen the grip of those other stories, those other identities, the ways we've been formed in the world, and instead to allow ourselves to be reformed by this particular story, the story of Jesus. A story in which we, by the grace of God, have been invited to participate. Let us pray. One God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Help us to be honest about our divisions and the separations that afflict our church. At the same time, give us the grace not to allow these divisions to determine the nature or life of our church. O Lord, who brings together all things reconciling humanity to you and also reconciling us to each other, give us the gift of reconciliation, that we may banish all hatred and prejudice, all pride and rancor, and anything that hinders us from holy unity and friendship in your name. This we pray in your name, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so that we might be all of one heart and one soul, and with one voice we might glorify you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.